Hey friends, want to let you know that I have a book coming out in March of 2024. It's called Exiles, The Church in the Shadow of Empire. If you've been listening to me for more than like five seconds, you've probably heard me use the phrase uh, exile or, you know, that we are exiles living in Babylon. And, you know, that's something I've said for many years. And so this book is kind of the culmination of my thinking through the question, what is a biblical theology of a Christian political identity. So this book uh, does just that. It looks at how the people of God throughout scripture navigated the relationship with the various nations and empires that they were living under uh, in order to cultivate a framework for how Christians today should view their relationship with whatever uh, state or empire that they are living under. So I invite you to check it out. It's available for pre-order now. Again, the name is Exiles, the Church in the Shadow of Empire. Check it out. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. This is a Q&A podcast where I'm addressing the questions sent in from my Patreon supporters. Thank you very much to all of my supporters for your ongoing support and for these really uh, challenging questions that I'm going to do my best to wrestle with. If you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in Raw, get access to premium content, including uh, the ability to ask questions and access to the full length Q&A podcast episode. Uh, you know, you can get a teaser here of about, you know, 20, 30 minutes or so the first few questions, the rest of the episode will be uh, released on Patreon. So if you want to become a member, you can go check it out. Also, by way of reminder, if you're not heard yet, uh, for the Exiles in Babylon conference in April, we are adding a very important pre-conference conversation on the theology and politics of Israel-Palestine. I am very eager to have this conversation. We have uh, various scholars um, who have different perspectives on both theology and the politics of Israel-Palestine and the ongoing conflict that has been going on there. So um, would really encourage you to check that out if you're planning on attending Exiles. Uh, that will be available also, I mean, in person, obviously, just prior to the conference. So April 18th, 1230 to 330. If you can't attend live, in person, we will have an option to attend virtually as well. All the information is at theologyintheraw.com. So let's dive into some of these questions. All right. The first question is from an anonymous uh, patron who says, my wife has recently become affirming while I am not. I am concerned about how she reads the Bible and how to handle this situation. Do you have any advice? Um, I'm always hesitant giving marital advice, especially uh, toward people that I, I mean, I don't know. This is an anonymous person. Um, and so I don't know. Uh, I'll just speak directly to you. I, I don't know you and I don't know your wife. I don't know your marital situation, um, your temperaments, your personalities, your history. I've been married, you know, one year, 40 years. There's just, there's so many. Yeah, I can't give any um, really specific advice, uh, not knowing details about your specific situation. I mean, you know, if this, you know, one marital situation where one spouse um, becomes affirming, in, in case people don't know, you know, affirming of same-sex marriage, um, that might look different than another situation where a spouse um, becomes affirming. So each situation, I think, is going to have many, many unique features that would need to be considered before any really thoughtful, uh, tangible advice, uh, should be given. So let me just give some, maybe some broad areas to think through. I, you probably already know this, uh, but I mean, you know, this isn't just like an affirming of same-sex marriage, non-affirming of same-sex marriage issue. I mean, there's, 
within a marriage, you know, people could drift into all sorts of areas of, you know, theological change that might be considered unhealthy. Maybe, maybe it's a, a drift towards a more progressive, progressive views on certain things. Maybe it's a drift towards more fundamentalist views on things like unhealthy drift or change can happen in various directions. So, um, I think that that's important to keep this specific situation in, in, in perspective that, um, you know, there's lots of different theological changes that a spouse can make that could be considered, you know, unhealthy. And of course, when we say unhealthy, we're, we're, <laughs> we're assuming that we have the healthy, correct perspective. So I, I do want to also even, even rest, even frame this quick question with a good deal of, of humility. Uh, there's, I mean, again, you, you prob probably already know this, but I mean, there, there's a, a, a wide spectrum of beliefs in in the affirming camp, just like there's a wide spectrum of beliefs in the non-affirming or, you know, those who believe in a traditional view of marriage, you have the, you know, the Westboro Baptist approach, you know, um, that's pretty disgusting. Um, you've got, you know, people who hold to traditional views on marriage for all the wrong reasons. You have people that, you know, might hold to conversion therapy or might be truly like homophobic, like they just can't stand gay people. You know, so on, on both sides, it's, you know, there's, there, there's a whole spectrum and range of different reasons why people might hold to either an affirming or a non-affirming view. I don't like the phrase non-affirming. So, um, maybe, you know, traditional view of marriage or whatever. So, but even, even in the scholarly world, in the affirming camp, you, you've got people like, um, like Bill Loader, uh, world renowned, expert in sexuality in ancient world. I mean, he, he says that the Bible categorically condemns all kinds of same sex sexual behavior, even in a committed relationship and the committed relationships were in existence in the ancient world. He just says the Bible's kind of outdated and we should therefore not believe this part of, or not follow this part of the Bible's ethic. You know, then you have other affirming writers who are going to say, no, that, you know, this, the idea of a uh, of a adult consensual committed relationships didn't exist in the ancient world, and therefore whatever the Bible's prohibiting, um, you know, it's not what we're talking about today. And then you have a whole range of other, you know, different arguments and beliefs um, that end up affirming same sex marriage, but they're not all the same. So, um, and, and you, I, I don't know. This is going to be anecdotal and just my own kind of perception. There are people who are Christians who affirm same-sex marriage who do so for, I think, I'll, I'll say honest reasons, like they've honestly wrestled with the text of scripture and, you know, give every impression that they uh, believe in the authority of scripture and yet interpret passages uh, differently. Um, there's other people who really don't do that. You know, they are bringing their presuppositions to the text of scripture. And, and we all do to some extent, right? We're, we're all bringing baggage to the text. But there's other people that just seem to be so determined to read scripture differently. And other people that seem to go through a genuine long period of wrestling with scripture, going back and forth and weighing different arguments and, and treating the text maybe more um, honestly. I'm not saying correctly. I'm saying they are genuinely wrestling with scripture, whereas other people might not be. So even how even people that end up interpreting scripture similarly might do so with different motivations and to me i think that does that does matter i would say and again this is kind of anecdotally for most straight people i know that become affirming it's usually again this is anecdotal so if you're like no that's not my experience i'm not saying it is i'm just saying in in my personal experience as i've 
seeing you know straight people change their views on the, on this question. Um, it's often, in most cases, driven out of a sense of justice for the marginalized, the oppressed. You know, they've seen the church really mistreat gay people, and affirming same-sex marriage is at least in part grown out of a motivation to, from their perception, to love gay people better, to not be homophobic, to not be kind of like Westboro Baptist or whatever. Um, in, in my experience, that's the primary catalyst for the change. It's, it's, it's rarely in my, again, anecdotal experience, you know, out of this kind of raw, uh, study of all the theological arguments and they studied Romans one, they studied Genesis one and two and Matthew 19. And they're like, man, I really think the Bible actually affirms same sex marriage. Like usually that's not what's leading their change. Usually it's a heart for gay people and, and a, and a concern for how gay people have been mistreated by the church. That, that is the catalyst of the change. So all that to say, if that captures your uh, your wife's perspective or, or the reason why she's shifted her views, then it would wouldn't make sense, right, to sort of address a change that's not primarily driven by the Bible or theology by countering uh, their perspective with Bible and theology. So I would just keep that in mind if if that's you know because um, I, I see this happen a lot when someone is is motivated. Their, their change has been motivated by a desire out of a heart for people, or, or maybe they have a, you know, they, they have some gay friends or maybe they meet a gay person and hear their story about how they've been harmed by the church. And that relationship shifts their perspective. It just doesn't make sense to sort of try to combat that perspective or win that person back over to the traditional side by using biblical arguments when biblical arguments isn't the Bible wasn't really the main reason why they changed it in the first place. So I, I would want to know, like genuinely know, I mean, so don't interrogate you know, don't back someone in the corner and, you know, why did you shift your, you know, but like out of genuine curiosity, I mean, this is your your wife, you're, you're committed to this person, you're living with this person, you know, like out of genuine curiosity, try, try to understand, um, why they shifted their, their views. Um, I'm always curious and I, I like it when people ask me this question, like I'm always curious again, if it doesn't come off as interrogative, um, like what would convince you to embrace the traditional view of marriage? Like, what would it take if someone's like nothing? I'm done. I'm I'm so committed to the other side that there's nothing you could say. Or you know, for some people, hopefully there is something. Like, would it be a more compelling scripture argument? Would it be being convinced that the traditional view of marriage isn't intrinsically harmful toward gay people. Maybe it would be meeting some gay people who are passionate about the traditional view of marriage. Um, so-called, you know, maybe side B uh, gay Christians. Yeah. So I, I, I hope uh, not, not all shifts from traditional marriage to affirming same-sex marriage are the same. So I would really want to dig in and understand, you know, what is, has led to this shift. All right. Next question. How this is kind of related. Well, it's in the same purview, I guess, of, of, uh, the first question. Um, how important is it, uh, that you and Chris, my wife, uh, are in step in your theology together? Uh, for instance, hell, gender, et cetera. You once mentioned that she joked about, asking, you know, what do we believe again to me? So <laughs> she's, we do, yeah, we, we've, we've got lots of kind of marital jokes that we have with each other regarding kind of our, how we approach 
God, Christianity, the Bible, theology, and all that stuff. Um, my wife, she would say that she is not primarily like theologically minded. And what I mean by that, I mean, she reads the Bible extensively. She um, prays like crazy. She has a, a deep, intimate relationship with God. Um, and she's got this sixth sense, this, this spiritual awareness, this intuition. If, if, if we were raised more charismatic, it'd probably be like the gift of what discerning the spirits maybe, or prophecy. Maybe, I think discerning the spirits might, might be the one that would map on, uh, her kind of spiritual intuition. That's just, it's just really remarkable, um, how she can just has this like X spiritual x-ray vision that can like see right through people and sniff out stuff. And so her, um, her approach to Christianity is, um, very relational, both with God and with other people. Um, I feel like I'm kind of the opposite. Like mine's so analytical and almost, uh, can be to, to my fault, way less intuition, way less emotion. Um, uh, I struggle deeply, you know, with prayer. It's always an ongoing struggle. Reading the Bible is like no problem. Understanding, you know, memorizing like references, you know, like where this verse occurs or whatever, like for some reason, numbers stick in my head so I can kind of pull up a reference that, you know, I came across like 10 years ago or whatever that comes more naturally to me. Now I'm going to say like, (laughs) I think uh, I'm way, I, I would much rather have her kind of approach to Christianity than my, you know, analytical stuff. Uh, I think both, both can be helpful, but, um, I think it's a good, it, it really does complement each other really well. Um, in fact, it, we will also joke and that, again, this is a joke, not, 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 not necessarily totally true, but like, I'll say, all right, you take care of the prayer side of this and I'll take care of the, you know, Bible reading theology side, you know, it's like, well, obviously I need to pray too. And obviously she needs to read the Bible too, but all that to say, um, I can't, I can't remember a time when my sort of any kind of like change in my theology, you know, shifting my views on hell or, you know, when I dove, did a deep dive into the study of sexuality that, 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 that never really, because she knows that I try to read scripture as thoroughly and honestly as I can try to interpret it as honestly as I can, we'll let the chips fall where they may, even if I land on a view that, um, gets me in trouble or, or it doesn't please the masses or whatever. Like, yeah, she, she's never really had a problem with that. Yeah. So it's not, I think maybe my commitment to nonviolence, she's like, well, you know, would you defend me if I was being attacked? And I'm like, well, I'll pray for you. <laughs> she's like, I got to defend myself. So maybe you buy me some mace or something. Um, yeah, we, we, we joke around about that. And, and, um, but that that's never been a source of contention. Yeah. I'm trying to think like if there's been anything that has come up where she's like, you believe what now, you know? Um, yeah, it really hasn't. So, um, yeah, she trusts my approach to scripture and, um, yeah, we kind of lean on me, I think for like, yeah, well, so what does the Bible say about this? You know, um, she, she knows she hasn't studied the doctrine of hell, you know, like, so she's like, well, tell me what the Bible says, you know, and point me to passages or whatever. But, um, again, I, again, like kind of contemporary theological debates and all that, that's just not her, you know, MO. She just doesn't, she kind of gets annoyed sometimes at all the theological debates. So, um, yeah, that's more the space that I kind of like to thrive in. All right, next question. This comes from Danny. Uh, how would you counsel a youth pastor to incorporate LGBT kids into a youth group setting? Do you have examples of this working well um, that you have heard about? Um, I 
I'm trying, I mean, I have come across youth groups that I think are approaching this conversation in very healthy ways are the ones that I think are not. Um, I don't have like a name off the top of my head to give you, but um, just to be clear, whenever I hear um, youth groups refer to like LGBT kids, I just want to stop right there and say, that's a very, very diverse umbrella category. Are we talking about LGBT kids who are not Christians? Are we talking about LGBT kids who are Christians and are more progressive in their Christian views? Are they uh, are Christians and more conservative in their theological views? Like, where, what, what do we mean by LGBT kids? And then, I mean, this is a hobby horse I like to um, jump on constantly, but like, I want to make a distinction too between LGB and T. I think those are overlapping to some extent, but different conversations too. And then even within the T conversation, I think the the transgender conversation as it pertains to youth culture today is almost like a separate subset of the transgender conversation if we step back and look at just the transgender conversation as as a whole, you know, um this is something when I give talks on this, I, I make a clear distinction up front. So already when you say incorporate LGBT kids, we need to linger on what we're even talking about there because that's a really diverse uh, group of people. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, for example, when it comes to, let's look, when it comes to the T, when it comes to kids who identify as trans, like, are they identifying as the opposite sex? Are they pursuing medical intervention or are they simply, they just don't, they don't maybe match up to the gender stereotypes, you know, Um, are they, is it, I got to be careful here too, and I'd encourage you to be careful how you word this, but are, or even with LGBT as a whole, again, when it comes to youth culture, if they're living in a more conservative environment at school, uh, you know, among their friend group, whatever, then there would be less motive, social motivation to identify as LGBT, LGBT. But if they're in a more progressive environment, there might be more social motivation to identity, identify as LGBT, explore their sexuality, maybe explore their gender identity. You know, when I go to, when I travel to like the middle of Iowa and talk to a church, you know, the youth group might have one or two LGBT kids, you know, and and they're really trying to reach the LGBT community. And it, it's it's really the overwhelming majority might not identify that way. And, and a few here and there might identify that way. But when I go to like, uh, this is, when I go to Seattle, um, you know, it's not uncommon for youth pastors to say like, you know, yeah, around 50% of my youth group identifies as LGBT. And I talk to parents like, yeah, three of my four kids identify as trans or, you know, um, and, you know, we, I don't want to get caught in the, lost, lost in the weeds, caught in the, stuck in the weeds, whatever the phrase is. Um, but I mean, I, I would, all that this, all that to say, as we're, again, as we're trying to get a mind around these LGBT kids, I would want to um, pay attention to what kind of social environment are we, are we, are you, Danny, uh, living in? Um, and what is the social environment of, of these kids? Also with, when it comes to youth group, um, youth groups, I always want to ask the youth leaders, like, do you see your youth gathering, your youth community as primarily evangelistic or dis- or focused on discipleship? Like, are you, when you gather the kids together, is it basically to introduce um, kids to Jesus, uh, many of whom may not even know Jesus, or is it to take confessing Jesus followers into a deeper faith with Jesus? Is it more evangelistic, more discipleship focused? I think that makes a, that, um, I think that would change the dynamic and maybe even how you approach this conversation. Either way, at the end of the day, I would, I would want 
anybody who is serving on some kind of leadership level within the youth group. You know, I know youth groups might have, you know, volunteer adult leaders, but then also, you know, maybe juniors and seniors or whatever in the high school group kind of taking on some kind of leadership role within the group. For anybody within that category, I would want them to be committed followers of Jesus who um, believe in and embrace the church's ethical position on these things, um, regardless of their sexual orientation. So if they're gay, great. If they identify as trans, great. Uh, as long as they, as long as a clear, the church and the youth group has a clear ethical position on these, um, on these questions and anybody in a leadership role is, um, believing like it embraces those ethical beliefs. So again, it's not so much the specific temptation that certain kids might struggle with, whether it's same sex attraction or opposite sex attraction, whatever, like we're all going to be struggling with some kind of temptation and failing, but striving towards what we think is good and true and beautiful according to God's design. Um, so I'm not so concerned. I'm not so concerned with the specific kind of temptation somebody is wrestling with and submitting to Jesus I'm committed with, are they wrestling with and submitting that to Jesus, uh, according to how the church understands that, that position. Um, hope that helps. There's more I can say about that. Let's move on to this next question. This comes from, um, Teresa. Um, would you ever do a podcast like the one you did with Jared about heresy again? Did you have any takeaways from that conversation? I'm getting asked this a lot from my friends. Um, uh, I'm, i I'm sure, you know, um, back in, November, I had a conversation with a guy named Jared um, that was different than other podcasts I've done. Um, you can go check it out if, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, I, you know, I've had a range of people. I've had a very a wide range of responses to that podcast. Some people loved it, and thought it was great. Other people hated it, thought I should never do it again. And as I said in the sort of the after afterward to that conversation, you know, I, I think I said, you know, like I was like when I scheduled that podcast, I was like 51% like, yeah, this is a good idea. And 49% of me was like, probably not a good idea. <laughs> I don't know where I'm at now. I might be flip-flopped on that. I, yeah, to, to answer your question, I probably won't do something like that again. That, that, that was out of my style. I rolled the dice, wanted to try something different. And yeah, to be clear, uh, I, I did not uh, invite that guest on to have a debate uh, with him about our different viewpoints. Uh, I would only, I don't, first of all, I don't like debates, especially verbal debates. I, I just think they're, um, I, I just don't like them personally. I don't, I, I don't mind listening to debates. Um, I, I think debates can be good. I'm just, I'm just not wired that way. I don't really like it. But even if I did want to get into maybe more of a dialogical debate, it would only be with somebody who is a, a good faith conversation partner who I'm convinced is a, is curious, genuinely curious about what I actually believe. Um, and then we can share our differences and I'll listen to this person and they listen to me and we try to sort out where we agree, where we disagree. We push back on our disagreements and listen to the other person push back. But obviously that wasn't the case with that episode. Like that, that's not, uh, I would only enter into some kind of dialogical debate with somebody who's like a good faith trying to understand where I'm coming from. But when I'm saying like, you know, with somebody, for instance, theoretically, if I was going to tell somebody, hey, here's what I believe, and they didn't even believe what I said I believe, then that's that's just not a good faith conversation. So yeah, the purpose was basically just to say, hey, you're misrepresenting me, and here's what I believe. Can you please stop misrepresenting me? And it didn't, I didn't think it went well. Um, did I expect it to go well? I don't, I don't know. Again, it was just kind of a, a roll of the dice. Um, so to answer your question, Teresa, even if I, as I hear myself talk out loud here, 
Um, n- no, I probably won't do that. I don't want to promise 100%. I'll never do something like that ever again, but probably not. <laughs> probably not. All right, next question. Uh, Christians do not have to follow Old Testament law. Why are the Ten Commandments different? Okay, so... Um, it's a great question. It's so great that there's been many, 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 many books and PhD dissertations written on this very topic. So, uh, you know, Christianity and the law or the New Testament and the Old Testament law. I mean, th- this is a, a a historical debate that's been going on for centuries. So I'm going to solve it here in f- the next five minutes. <laughs> it's actually part of my PhD research was on, um, it, it was a subset of this conversation yeah, my dissertation was on, you know, the interpretation of Levit- Leviticus 18.5b in early Judaism and in Paul. So if that sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher, um, basically, I, you know, uh, comparing kind of different soteriological frameworks between Paul and early Judaism, first century Judaism, um, through the lens of how they interpreted this verse, Leviticus 18.5, which was kind of like the John 3.16 of early Judaism. And Paul quotes it in Galatians uh, 3 and Romans 10 seems to cite it negatively. Um, so it's like, what's going on here? What, is, what problem does Paul have with Leviticus and, and so on and so forth? Anyway, it kind of dabbled in this Paul and the law uh, conversation. So he, here's, so I'm going to give you a very overly simplified response for the sake of time and for the sake of just your interest here. When we talk about Old Testament law, I want to make a distinction between what scholars call apodictic Laws and case laws, apodictic, that one sounds really weird and borderline offensive, Um, A-P-O-D-I-C-T-I-C. Just think like apodictic, like universal principles or thou shalt not, thou shalt, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery is an apodictic law. It's just true universally, don't do it. Case law takes is is almost like a specific application of that law in, in a in a specific like time and space and cultural context. Okay, so let me give you an example. Apodictic law would be don't steal. That's part of the Ten Commandments, Exodus twenty. And then you see several case laws related to this apodictic law, like in Exodus 22, verse one, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep and and so on and so forth. And then there's other, you know, case laws regarding stealing there. So let's go back to your question. Do Christians follow this law? Well, which one? And what are you talking about? Like, yeah, Christians shouldn't steal. And it's just almost, almost like, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen. What are the odds of this happening outside of like Missouri or something? Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed this portion of the Patreon only Q&A podcast. If you'd like to listen to the full length episode and receive other bonus content like monthly podcasts, opportunities to ask questions, access to first drafts of my research and monthly Zoom chats and more, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw to join theology in the raw's Patreon community. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.